For the rest of us, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. So if you will, join me in turning to Genesis chapter 20. We are studying this fall the life of Abraham, though this week it's felt like winter, hasn't it? It's been exceedingly cold, and I want to move to Arizona in light of it. Um, There's a lot, including the weather, that I just don't understand. All right, that's not going to be a shocker to anyone. There's a lot that I just do not understand. Like, for instance, people who can, like, see something, just like a picture, and then can draw it. You ever met these people? Who could just, like, just take something they saw in their mind and then capture it perfectly, the landscape or the sunset or Mount Rainier, or just capture some emotion or feeling just with pencil and paper. Like, I'm like a, I paint about as well as a gorilla with a crayon. It just baffles me how people can do this. A lot of things baffle us. I don't know, for you, it might be science or math or poetry. I've read a lot about World War I. I still have no idea why or how World War I started. It doesn't make any sense to me. We just have those gaps in our understanding, those things that baffle us. And I think ultimately one of the things that sometimes baffle us are religious questions, theological questions, things as it relates to God. In many ways, I'm wondering if you're here this morning because you're wanting answers to some of the deep existential theological questions of the day. And we all get them from time to time. My children do this often to me. I'll be tucking them into bed and they'll ask me a question and my wife will be there and she'll look at me and say, we've spent tens of thousands of dollars for you to get your master's and your doctorate. Now's your time to shine. And I look at them and I'm like, I wish I could shine. That's a hard question. I don't know. I punt. There are just some questions that are hard to answer, hard to understand. And our text today, there is a question that just kind of rises to the surface. That is a hard question to answer. It's sort of hard to understand. And we we can make a list of lots of the hard kind of theological, biblical questions that are hard to answer. But let me just cherry pick one mystery and put it in your mind that our text answers. And it's simply this. How does God accomplish anything with what he's got to work with? You ever thought about this? How does God accomplish what God wants to accomplish when there is a world opposing him? How does God accomplish what he wants to accomplish when sometimes the church is unfaithful? How does God accomplish his ends, his purposes, his plans in a world of unfaithfulness? How does God get anything done? This fall, we're studying the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis. And though Abraham has these like soaring moments of faith, he also has these low moments of folly, doesn't he? And we come to one of them. And in so doing, like, that's all of us. We have these moments of soaring faith, and sometimes we have moments of unbelievable unfaithfulness. And so the question that chapter 20 is asking, kind of posing to us is, how does God work with all of that? How does God work his faithful ends in a world and sometimes when the even people of God fall into unfaithfulness? That's what we're going to consider 
this morning. The big idea that is behind me is simply this. Our unfaithfulness can't undo God's faithfulness. That's what the text is arguing this morning. So if you will, turn with me to chapter 20. We're going to read the entire chapter, and then we're going to go through it in three movements, starting in verse 1, chapter 20, the book of Genesis. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Sur, and he journeyed to Girah. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Girah, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there was no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place in which we come, say to me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servant and female servant and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land before you dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and, there, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. We ended last week in sort of the darkness of Sodom and Gomorrah. God judged Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin. And today, I want to look at this text, not by way of scenes, but I think the best way and the easiest way to break up this scene is by characters. So we're going to look at the three kind of major characters of Genesis chapter 20, which is Abimelech, Abraham, and then finally, God. So first, let's look at Abimelech. And I, I think we can just kind of describe him or kind of uh, put him in a sort of box. He is the innocently unfaithful or the accidentally unfaithful. So we find uh, Abraham, and he is in Gira, which is ruled by a king named Abimelech. Basically, he's a Philistine. And as the story unfolds, Abimelech takes Sarah, his wife. After all, from his perspective... 
she's a free woman. She's not married. And so he sees her and he claims her. At least that's what he thinks. And this is all interrupted, right? For, for a moment as we're going through this, instantly we're like, we got a problem because the whole storyline that's been building is that Sarah is going to have a child named Isaac. And it's all being interrupted because now Sarah is the wife of a Philistine king. So as is often the case, God himself intervenes. Verse 3 comes by way of a dream. And he tells Abimelech a terrifying few words, right? Basically, he says, you're dead. You're going to die. Abimelech, though, is like taken aback, right? He, 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 you know, starting in verse 3 and 4, he has no idea. And so he responds to God who says, you're a dead man. You took someone else's wife. And he says, I had no idea that Sarah was married. I'm innocent. He like puts his hand on the Bible and it's like, I'll, I, I swear I'll tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. I had no idea I was duped. God responds and, and in one sense vindicates Abimelech. Did you notice that? He says, you're right. You are innocent. You, you didn't know. You were duped. But you got to give Sarah back. And then says, if you don't, you're going to die. And if you do, you're going to live. And if you're like, oh, is God, you know, just saying like instantly you're going to die or, or is this curse a plague? Well, if you go down to the last few verses, we find out what this curse is that has fallen on Abimelech and his entire community, his entire family, his tribe, his people. God has closed up the wombs of the women such that in a generation they will literally die out. That's the curse that's fallen on Abimelech and his people. And in one sense, if you think about it, there is a, a type of poetic justice to this. Abimelech is accidentally, unintentionally, about to stamp out the promised people of God. And so judgment falls, which kind of fits the crime. Judgment is going to come on Abimelech, and his people are going to be stamped out too. So that's Abimelech. He's innocent, didn't know about it, was duped, and yet he is still unfaithful. And in many ways, I've been thinking about this all week. And it's interesting that though he doesn't know that Sarah was married, God still keeps him accountable. Like God's not like, well, you get, a, get out a free jail car because you didn't know. God still says, no, no, no. Even if you didn't know, I'm still holding you accountable. You are still morally responsible for this egregious act, even though Abimelech didn't know any better. And maybe you're like, that doesn't seem right. How could someone be held accountable for committing a sin or, or committing an act that they didn't know they committed? Well, think of it this way. This is how justice works. So if, this is just hypothetical, if I got pulled over by a police officer um, for speeding, and let's just say the police officer came up and knocked on the window and said, uh, you were speeding, and I'd say, I didn't know that it was 20 miles per hour here. I thought it was 40. I could say that, and I could be truthful. Like, I could really believe that it was 40 miles per hour. Or I could say, I'm sorry. I had no idea I was speeding. I was singing Amazing Grace as loud as I could, and my foot's a little heavy, and all of a sudden I was going 40. Oops, I didn't know in the goodness of my heart that I was going 40 miles per hour in a 20. What do you think that police officer is going to do, theoretically? Hypothetically, this has never happened. I'm going to still get a ticket. So just because I 
pled that case or said I didn't know doesn't necessarily get me out of this ticket. Well, that's from a kind of a human perspective how justice works. How much more from God's perspective? Abimelech unintentionally was attacking the plan of God, the people of God, against the will and law of God. And God says, I'm going to hold you accountable regardless. And that's a truth not to be embarrassed by. That is a really, really, really good news. As we live in a sort of morally relativistic world that just sees truth in, as whatever beholds your heart, that people are going to be held accountable for their behavior, that's really good news. Really good news. That there are absolutes and that absolutely everyone will be held account for how they engage with those absolutes. You're not just off the hook if you fail. There is a a form of divine accountability for us all. Such that any person or institution, law or group who seeks to attack the people of God against the will and law of God are held accountable by the person of God. That's what we learned by way of Abimelech. Even if they didn't know that they did so. Ignorance is no get-out-of-jail-free card. So what does Abimelech do? Well, basically, Abimelech takes a woman as his wife, culturally doing nothing wrong. He thinks she's single. And yet, he's held accountable for what he's done because it didn't matter what the culture said. It mattered what God said. And God holds him personally responsible and his entire community. I think this is really good news. Really, really good news. Because as this nation is coming after God's people or the kind of about to be God's people in in Abraham in this coming seed, God's going to hold them accountable. And look what happens in response. So Abimelech is kind of confronted with this truth. God tells him and explains everything. And then Abimelech calls himself a sinner down in verse 9. Publicly declares that he has sinned. Then down in verse 14, he returns Sarah to Abraham. Confronted by his sin. Confronted by the situation. Confronted by the reality. And Abimelech responds in some way, not in all ways, but in this way, with righteousness. God gave Abimelech a way out. Maybe God gave Abimelech a way out because of you know, his ignorance, because he was sort of innocent or declared innocent, and so God gave him a way out, which was giving Sarah back. But God's mercy is all over this story. God gave Abimelech a way out, and Abimelech took it. The way out was giving Sarah back to his wife. There is always a way back to God. If you're here in this room and you're like, I've made a mess of my life, either accidentally or intentionally, there is a way to God. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's Abimelech. He's sort of innocently unfaithful and held accountable as such. But then let's turn to Abraham. We can call him the willfully unfaithful in this story, in this chapter. So if you look down at verse 1 in chapter 20, Abraham is on the move. He leaves Sodom and Gomorrah with good reason, right? 
Fire and brimstone had just fallen on Sodom and Gomorrah. Just imagine if Mount Rainier started blowing and we'd all be like, "Uh, Palm Springs sounds better. And so Abraham's on the move and he journeys southwest. And eventually he finds himself in Gira, which if you don't know your biblical geography, it's on the outskirts of the promised land. So Abraham has one foot inside the promised land, one foot outside the promised land. And sometimes kind of geography tells us something about what's going on in someone's heart in the Bible. And you instantly should know kind of narratively something bad's about to happen. Abraham's got one foot in the church, one foot outside of the church. And drift inevitably will happen. So Abraham is in this strange land. And just remember, because we need this to remember this by way of context to make sense of what's happening. Abraham's rich like stinking rich. He's got a lot of stuff. Not to mention, he's got a beautiful wife. And so as he's kind of sojourning, moving around as his herds and his sheep and his goats and his donkeys are like feeding and stuff, he's got to move around to make sure everyone is fed to live off the land. And eventually he makes himself into Gira and he has a problem. He assumes that the king, Abimelech, is going to kill him and take his wife. And so he's like, well, how about we just say that you're my sister? Now, we've seen this before, haven't we? Genesis 12. Do you remember this? Abraham does the exact same thing when he's down in Egypt. Old sins have a way of working themselves back into our lives. Abraham was supposed to learn something about trusting God, that God was worthy of his trust, that God was worthy to protect his own promises, that he didn't have to sin and take things into his own hands. He was supposed to learn that lesson back in Genesis 12. But here we're reminded that he has not learned that lesson. You you ever wonder, you go through a trial, and then like a few years later you go through a similar trial? You ever wondered, why am I going through that similar trial? Maybe. God brings similar trials in order to, for us to practice faithfulness because we didn't learn that lesson the first time. That certainly seems to be the case with Abraham. So Abraham calls Sarah his sister. And as a result, Abimelech takes Sarah to be his wife. Well, once Abimelech, like I just said, realizes what's going on, Abimelech Gets up early. He's like, I got to do something about this. He, he doesn't waste time at all. And he goes to Abraham. And so we have God confronting Abimelech. And now we have Abimelech confronting Abraham. And basically he says, Abraham, why did you fool me? Abraham, why did you do this to me? Why, why did you lead me into the sin? Why did you bring this curse? Abraham, why did the, the, the bigness of Abraham, why did you stoop so low as to do me this unkindness? And there's a sense in which all of us Agree with Abimelech. Like he has a right reason to be frustrated and mad. I mean, his entire people are about to get stamped out all because of this lie. Abraham's confronted. And we see, starting in verse uh, 11, that Abraham gives three excuses, three justifications for why he did what he did. Did you notice that when I read it? So verse 11, he basically says, Well, I did it because I was afraid. Fear of man. I did it because I thought there was no fear of God 
at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He thought the worst of them. He jumped to conclusions about them. He assumed that there was no goodness in them. He stopped believing that God would protect him and that God would protect his promises. Classic fear of man. Then in verse 12, he basically says, it wasn't exactly a lie, right? Sarah technically, this is kind of gross, but technically is my sister. So I didn't really lie. It's kind of a white lie. It's kind of a gray area. So um, that's why I did it. I was telling a little bit of the truth. That's excuse number two. And then down in verse 13, Abraham basically says, well, this is what I've always done. So this is kind of my mode all along. Since we left my father's house, Sarah and I have always been on the same page on this. That as we go from travel to travel, she's going to kind of, this is going to be our little scam, our little sham. She's just going to always say, ah, yeah, that's my sister. So nothing's new. One, not two, three excuses that Abraham gives because of this whole thing. And you see here, Abraham's willful unfaithfulness. That's pretty pretty clear. I mean, this is a low point for Abraham. But, But it's even lower when you think about the man of God is being rebuked by a man of the world. Just think about that. Here's Here's the nations, Philistines, rebuking a man of God. That's about as low as someone could go. Abraham's confronted by his sin, and he gives a litany of excuses. That's just a white lie. I I was justified in doing it. You're scary. I'm pretty sure you would have killed me. How easy his inner lawyer and our inner lawyer comes to our defense when we're confronted by our sin. Abraham doesn't really properly confess. He admits that he lied, but he sort of, by way of his excuses, it kind of calls into question his confession. Abraham is willfully unfaithful, which sort of makes what happens next all the more shocking, right? Verses 14 and 15, Abimelech showers Abraham with blessing. He just gives him stuff. He's like, you want some sheep? You want some camel? You want some silver? It's yours. You can go anywhere you want. Best land, it's yours. Yeah, you want Palm Springs? You want Arizona? You want Spokane? That's the good stuff. That's where I'm from. It's yours. Abimelech just showers him with blessing. Not only that, the greatest thing he gives back, he goes, Sarah, she's yours. Abimelech does exactly what God told him to do in the dream. He gives Sarah back, and in so doing, Abraham receives much better than he deserved. Abraham willfully sinned. Abraham, who didn't yet learn that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Abraham, who made excuse after excuse. Abraham, who's sinned not once by giving his wife to another man. He does this twice. Do you know what would happen to me if I did this once? Abraham did it twice. And so you're, you're, you're left at the end of this chapter wondering, like, how could God use the nations trying to stamp out the prophetic promised seed and God's own people willingly unfaithful? How does God work with those two realities? The nation attacking the people of God and the people of God living unfaithfully. How in the world does God work in the midst of that situation? Two unfaithful characters 
One willfully, one accidentally, but nevertheless, how does God work with unfaithfulness? That's the question. Luckily, there's one more character, isn't there? God really is the primary character in this story. That's really what this story is all about. It's really about what God is doing behind the scenes to accomplish what he means to accomplish. His purpose is independent of the unfaithfulness of Abimelech and Abraham. Abimelech and Abraham, in one sense, if you just think story-wise, narrative-wise, book-wise, they're foils set to contrast. Their unfaithfulness is set to contrast the faithfulness and beauty and majesty and mercy of God. And you see all these Easter eggs all over the place to see what God is doing in his hidden and not-so-hidden providence in this text. So, if you go on to verse 4, we read, Now, Abimelech had not approached her. That's polite language to say Abimelech had not consummated the marriage. They hadn't been physically intimate. We have no idea the circumstances surrounding it. All we know is that they were not physically intimate. And if you're sitting there going, why in the world would Moses, the author, tell us that detail? Why is that an important detail? Right? As you're just studying the Bible, doing Bible study, these are the kind of questions that you should be asking. Like, why this detail? Why did God put it in the mind of Moses to write that detail? Well, think what happens right after this. Chapter 21. You don't, don't read it, but just your, your Bibles, your study Bibles or whatever, puts a little title, and it says, The Birth of Isaac. That's chapter 21. That's what happens right after this. Moses needs us all to be crystal clear that Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah. He needs to make crystal clear that the son of promise is coming from Abraham and Sarah and not from Abimelech. And so here we have a story promising and explaining that the promised child is coming from the right parents, Abraham and Isaac. And even if you see, if you go down and look at that money, like Abimelech gives a thousand pieces of silver and you're like, why is that? Well, the author tells us, Abimelech explains why he did it. He gave a thousand pieces of silver to Sarah to vindicate Sarah, to to explain culturally and socially, I never touched her. That's what that was. That, That money was not just a nice generosity gift. It was like a signal, a, uh, a signal and a symbol that Sarah was morally pure. God's faithfulness is all over this text. E- even, even when you think about what God promised in Genesis 12, so this whole thing is building, right? God promises, right when Abraham and Sarah enter this story, God says, I'm going to give you land, people, blessings. And then he says, attached to that, Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And do you notice that's how this whole thing is framed? Abimelech accidentally curses Abraham and is cursed. And then Abimelech blesses Abraham and he is blessed. God is fulfilling his promises all throughout this, even though Abraham and Abimelech in one sense are unfaithful. You see, God doesn't let anything up to chance. God doesn't sort of wind up the world and then just step aside. God doesn't lose control for a moment, for a second, for a millisecond. God doesn't submit to any other plans. God doesn't roll the dice, play the odds. God doesn't cross his fingers and just hope for the best. That's not how God plays this world. God here wonderfully intervenes such that Sarah is kept pure. Look at verse 6. 
Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. God's speaking to Abimelech. He didn't know. God says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I, God, who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Who was responsible? Well, Abimelech in one sense, but ultimately it was God. God intervened in order to accomplish that Sarah never was physically intimate with Abimelech. God did it. See, not even the accidental sin of a king, not even the unintentional unfaithfulness of Abimelech, not even the blind folly of a pagan nation, not even the willful sin of Abraham, not even the chance coincidence of this scene, not even the slightest unfaithfulness can stop the faithfulness of God. That's what this story is all about. It's amazing. And I just want to stand back and say, do you believe that? Do do you believe that with all of your heart? That when you think of a world maybe on the brink of war, when physical or economic insecurities arise in life, in your life, when, when you're trying to figure out how to pay that bill and you're like, I don't have enough money in the bank to pay that bill. When you're sitting at home lonely and just wish you had more friends. When you're anxious and worried. When you're confused, tempted to maybe take shortcuts. Do you believe this? Our unfaithfulness can't undo God's faithfulness. And really, it's not just Abraham. This is the storyline of the Bible. This is all of Scripture. This truth is highlighted, I think, in an even greater way if you just turn it over to the New Testament. Paul writes to encourage a pastor named Timothy. And this pastor named Timothy is tempted to make shortcuts. He's way over his head. And so Paul writes to encourage him to be faithful. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this. I'll just read it to you. Listen to these words. Paul writes this. Remember Jesus Christ. Always a good command to remember. Remember Jesus Christ in all your days. And he says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being enchained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, which is eternal glory. And then he says this in verse 11. Here is a trustworthy saying, and basically saying, I want you to remember this. If we died with him, Christ, we will also live with Christ. Astonishing truth. If we endure, we will also reign with Christ. Amazing. And then it gets a little darker. If we disown Christ, he will disown us. But then it flips more positive. If we are faithless, as we sometimes are, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. If we lapse into unfaithfulness, which is not an allowance for unfaithfulness, it's not an encouragement to be unfaithful, it's just saying that Christians are sometimes momentarily unfaithful. When we are momentarily unfaithful, as we all are from time to time, God is yet faithful. Because that's who he is. He is the faithful God who continually showers us with his faithfulness even while we are yet sinners and sometimes unfaithful. Really, when you think about it, this is the hope of the gospel, is it not? If you're not a Christian, this is, in some sense, the only thing I want you to hear this morning. The most important thing 
for you to hear this morning, and it's simply this, that the faithful, a Christian is not someone who is faithful and then God saves them. That's not how this works. Really, a Christian is just someone who knows that they are unfaithful and turns to the faithful God who provided a faithful son to die for them, and then they put their faith in that son and are counted among the faithful. That's the gospel. And in so doing, it turns unfaithful people into progressively more faithful men and women. God is faithful. He cannot disown himself. What God is, he always is. We waver. God doesn't. God is always faithful. And really, this is how the scene ends in chapter 20. If you go back to to Abraham in chapter 20, the scene ends with Abraham praying to God, interceding like he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is, after all, verse 7 calls him. God calls him a prophet. And Abraham acts like a prophet, intercedes for Abimelech, and God works through him. Isn't that amazing? As idiotic as what Abraham did in giving away Sarah to this king, God still uses him. God uses even the unfaithful. I mean, there are consequences for unfaithfulness. That was last week's sermon, not Sodom and Gomorrah. But here, the shocking thing is the sheer mercy of God to use unfaithful men and women. Our momentary unfaithfulness does not undo God's eternal faithfulness. That's a trustworthy saying. No dictator, no tyrant, no maliciousness or no perversion, no corruption or evil, no malintent or accidental policy, no evil or violent act, no bump or bruise, darkness or devastation, no calamity, disaster, no failure or frustration, whether intentionally or willfully can thwart God's plan. That's what this is all about. It's amazing. The nations rage. They always have. Sinners sin. Christians fail. Unfaithfulness might momentarily look like it's raining, but even if we are unfaithful in the midst of our hearts for a moment, know this. Unfaithfulness can't undo God's faithful plans. We march forward knowing with confidence that God faithfully will win, that the faithful will be vindicated. So I just want to encourage you, charge forward with Jesus. Repent of the unfaithfulness that is in your heart and in your life and be comforted in the reality of this chapter. Unfaithfulness can't undo God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we... uh, stand astonished that you would use any of us. When we just think about our stories and how you've used us in people's lives to encourage their faith in Christ or, or to, 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 to use us in order to, to help people trust in Jesus Christ for the first time and repent and believe the gospel, Lord, we, we are astonished that you continue to use the church. And we thank you, Lord, for your Sovereign faithfulness. We, we pray, Lord, that we would be counted as more and more faithful each and every day. And Lord, we pray that you'd use this local church, that you'd use our accountability to this local church, that you'd use the men and women of this church to help us 
to be more and more faithful as we display the glory of Jesus Christ and his faithfulness in our world. And we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.